For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jack Stauffer. I have the blessing of being the pastoral intern here at Christ Reformed. And I get to preach when Dr. Campbell's away under the oversight of the elders. And I am blessed to have this opportunity. And we are continuing a study through the book of Jonah. The storms of life often reveal the truths of a person's character. And this phrase, storms of life, I'm sure we've all heard it in Christian circles. It's a biblical one for a reason. Because it's, it's the storms in life that make people who they really are. End up defining them. However close to God's character we think we are. Usually it takes the sufferings that God gives us in life to reveal to us the vast chasm between God's nature and ours. Personally, uh, each season of life that I've had so far, middle school, high school, college, interning with RUF, and now in seminary, I really believe that I grow in patience and Christlikeness only for that season to end, and then I realize how much of that maturity was really just based off routine. And these storms in life are a blessing. And Jonah was such a man. A storm, literal storm, came into his life and it revealed the nature of his character. And he couldn't hide from it. This is now my, my second sermon through the book of Jonah. If you'd like a recap, I encourage you to go to our website and listen to the first one. And as we continue this story, this incredible story about this wayward prophet, I, I want to remind you all that the story of Jonah, Jonah is not the main character. Even though we so remember it that way. The story of Jonah is primarily a story of God's character. And his radical, merciful pursuit of sinners, of which Jonah was one. And the Lord will use whatever means necessary to bring him and his children to repentance. And it's my hope this morning that as we look into the first chapter of Jonah... That through the actions and failures of this prophet, we may all learn more about the God who loves us. Also, that we may see through the character of Jonah, learn about the, the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, who are we that you remember us? The Son of Man that you, take, that you take mind of us. Thank you for loving us before the foundation of the world in your Son, Christ Jesus. And now I pray that your word would bear fruit among us, Lord. Open our ears, open our eyes. Help us to behold wonderful things from your law. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So as an overview, we're going through the first chapter of the book, in Jonah, I, book of Jonah. I invite you all to turn in your copy of God's word there, and you might find your home group helps helpful as we move through four different sections of this passage. And, and before I get started, I just want to make a slight caveat off my last sermon. I was reading through my notes, and I realized, rookie mistake, I misdefined mercy. <laughs> I was like reading through my notes, I'm like, is that what I said? And it was what I said. I said that mercy is an undeserved kindness from the Lord, which is true, but it's not as, not as direct as it should be. More specifically, the mercy of God is his compassion towards his people. 
It's his favorable disposition. It's his loving delay of justice upon his people. Rookie mistake, that's why I'm still in seminary. Show me some grace. So let's start off with verses, chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 of Jonah. This is the word of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. As you recall from the first three verses, Jonah, this faithful prophet of Israel, the Lord called him to not just speak to his people, but to be a missionary, to go to Nineveh, and to call the Ninevites to repentance. And Jonah, we're not told why just yet, went the other way. He fled from the face of the Lord. He went down to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went into the ship, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And now we pick back up into his story with the question of, what is, how does God respond to the disobedience of his prophet? And this passage tells us, the Lord sent a great wind to the sea as Jonah was attempting to flee. And that great wind became a great cyclone. Jonah was in for it. Because when people do not heed God's voice, they might heed his discipline. God loved Jonah enough to ruin his plans. So you might be thinking, how bad was this storm? And thankfully, this passage gives us several, several ideas just to show our minds how bad and how dire of a situation this was. First, it says, the storm was so great that the ship threatened to break up. Literally, there's actually a cool use of personification here. Like the, literally, it would read, the ship thought that it was about to break up. Like, the ship is the subject. That's how bad the storm was. The ship was thinking it, it was really bad. Second, what, did the sa- what were the sailors doing? These sailors, they were terrified. They were worried for their own lives. And you, you have to remember, this was their vocation. These were professional sailors who were terrified at the storm. This would be like, my dad's a pilot, and I have never seen my dad uncomfortable in a flight, no matter how bad the turbulence has got, which keeps me pretty chill. If I looked over and my dad was terrified, I'd know we're in a bad storm. Same here with these sailors. This was no small gale. It was a tempest. Once again, how bad was the storm? Each man started to pray, to cry out to their own God. Human beings are really curious. No matter how far away from the status of Christian or religious someone might claim to be, you can't stamp out that deep sense in something divine. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this. It says, also God has put eternity into a man's heart. We see this happen in this passage. Because if you put almost anybody in the most dire, hopeless, or scary situation... They will cry out to something. That's how bad this storm was. All of the pagans in this ship were calling out to their God because they were without hope from their own efforts. And not only that, what were the sailors doing? It says they were hurling the cargo into the sea. That's how bad this storm was. It's as if they were saying, we can lose all of our livelihood. 
all of our worth if that means we might save our life. When the cards are on the table and the game is up, nothing is more precious to a man than his life. And that's what we see happen here. This was a terrible storm. And it's one thing to be afraid and terrified in the hands of a human. It's another thing to be afraid and terrified in the hands of nature itself, of God's creation. And as I was working on the sermon and reading this passage, I could not get that song by Gordon Lightfoot out of my head, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I, I remember hearing that in middle school and just thinking, wow, I'm glad I'm not in the Navy. I'm glad I'm not on a boat because that would terrify me, especially if the gales of November came early. So in this terrible tempest, this life-shattering, death-contemplating, panic-inducing storm, where's our hero? Where's Jonah? It says he went down to Joppa, he went down into the ship, he went down into the hold of the ship, and he was fast asleep. Remember, this is a pattern for Jonah so far. He keeps digging, keeps digging himself into this hole. And the difference between Jonah and the sailors' reaction to the storm is pretty stark. You know, the sailors, are at least they're doing something. They're being sensical and logical, whereas Jonah is irrational and sluggish. And he's content with his situation. Jonah was fleeing the command of God. He was attempting to flee from the one who knows everything. And he was so at peace with his sin and with the displeasure of the Lord that not even the storm could wake him. Not even the storm. Friends, what a picture of sin this is for us. We see in Jonah a truth of our very nature. Sin nature hears the command of God and it flees, it ignores. It says, I am the master, not God. No one will know. Sin does not respond rationally to the world and eventually becomes callous, indifferent. Paul uses the language of the conscience in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says some people have seared consciences. It's as if they've ignored that subtle voice that Elder Galleon was telling us of, of the law of God so much that it's more like a dull whisper. And that's kind of where Jonah is right now. And while we all have not done precisely as Jonah, these truths about the nature of sin describe you as well. The question is, do you recognize it? Do you see yourself as any better than Jonah? What is your first response when confronted with God's law? Is it not so often to hide, flee, run away, irrationally try to get away from God? How often have you become comfortable with a screaming conscience? The truth is we're so weak. A strong faith is bold in acknowledging sin. Had Jonah had a strong faith right here, he would have confessed the moment the storm started. And yet we learn about his character. And my point is not just to talk about the nature of sin and its power. My point is to talk about that God, in his rich mercy, continued to pursue Jonah while he was in this state. These first few verses teach us so much about the Lord. This storm was not a random act of chance. And this book tells us this. It says, it didn't just say, a storm came about. It says, and the Lord hurled a great wind, and that great wind became a great storm. 
As you heard in our call to worship in Psalm 89, verse 9, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And so my point is this storm in Jonah's life, even though it did not seem like that, was a severe mercy. A severe mercy. And as we will see, it took this storm with all of its craziness and all of the circumstances surrounding it to get Jonah to confess his sin. It's like, it's like a parent who, when dealing with a young child, has that moment of decision. Am I going to be more stubborn than my child, and will I win this? I, I, I vividly remember uh, when my mother was homeschooling me. I think I was in second or third grade. I don't know. And she was teaching me grammar. And you know how there's those some English words that if you add ER or ING to the end, you have to duplicate one of the um, letters. I can't remember the terminology. Point being, it was the word dig. And my mom was trying to teach me that when dig becomes digger, you have to add a G. And I was not having it. I was not connecting the dots. And she could tell that I was being stubborn. And I sat in that chair at that table, I want to say for four or five hours. And my mom did not budge. And she broke me. <laughs> Thank goodness she broke me, because my grammar's a lot better now. <laughs> Point being, the worst thing my mother could have done for love of my, love of my grammar was nothing. Was to, would have been to walk away. And it's the same thing. The worst thing the Lord could have done to Jonah was to let him get to Tarshish and not send the storm. This is how sovereign our God is. And the storms of life is a fair description. You see it all through the scriptures in the book of Jonah, with the disciples in the Gospels, with uh, Paul on his way to Rome in the book of Acts. It's all throughout the scriptures. Because, friends, there is not a single gust of wind outside God's control. There is not a single molecule on this planet that does not bow to the word of our Father. And so often as Christians, and I've been here, we wrestle with the question, God, why is this happening to me? Why is this terrible storm coming upon my life? Are these not the questions that human beings wrestle with? I read a book in high school. It's by an author named Sheldon Vanaken, who was a personal friend with C.S. Lewis. And the book is titled A Severe Mercy. And the story of the book is incredible. It's about a man, a, um, a husband and wife, who didn't know the Lord, and yet they, the first half of the book is describing all the work they put into making their marriage perfect. And they did pretty well, just by reading the book. Halfway through the book, they're evangelized too and start coming to know the Lord and the wife first. Husband, he's kind of going along with it because he loves his wife. Not really because he loves Christ. And then his wife dies of cancer. And the rest of the book is a correspondence between C.S. Lewis and Sheldon Vanaken about wrestling with what happened. And it's incredible. Towards the end of the book, the author comes to the realization that had God not taken his wife... He would never come to know Christ because his love for his wife was so great. And that is a severe mercy. And it takes years and decades to be able to view things with that kind of a clarity. And that's what I mean. This storm and everything that happens to this book to Jonah was a severe mercy to him. So let's continue. 
How does Jonah handle this? Read with me, starting in verse 6 through verse 8. So the captain came and said to Jonah, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, that is all the sailors, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they all said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I titled this section, The Confrontation, because Jonah, one after the other, is confronted by those around him. There were times growing up in my family where my mother, she had a pretty strict wake-up time for us, even though we're homeschoolers. You know, it's possible. And if some of my siblings, if we didn't wake up by the alarm, and we didn't wake up when my parents came in to tell us to wake up, guess what they did? They came in and flipped on the lights, which no one liked. So as one method didn't work of waking us up, my parents would change tactics and go to another method to help wake us up. And similarly, Jonah was not awakened by the storm. So what happens next? The captain comes to wake him up. All the men of the ship were terrified and calling out to their own heathen gods. And notice, this captain was desperate to save the life of his sailors. He realized that even even in his pagan mind, he realized that even if one man did not join in this spiritual frenzy, that could mean their doom. That's how worried he was. And notice with me the irony here. Jonah, at the beginning of this book, was confronted with the sins of the Ninevites, and he had the ability to go preach salvation to them, and he said, no. And then here we have a captain who's concerned about the life of a random man on his boat, wanting him to get up and pray just so that they might be saved. So right here we see this first instance of the piety of a pagan being a little bit better than Jonah's. We're going to see that again. It's a theme in the scriptures sometimes. Sometimes the Lord gives great gifts to people outside the house of God to humble those within the house of God. And another note about this captain, we really need to keep this idea in mind when we evangelize to people. That all men know there is a God. As Elder Galleon was teaching. It is a truth that the spark of the divine is within every human being. No matter how much they care to say that that's not the case. Everyone knows there is a God. And this sailor, although they were appealing to many different deities, they knew that if they were to be saved, one of those deities was going to have to do something. They knew. And what a great way to conversation this can be. Romans 1, 18-25 teaches... That all men know that the Lord exists based on creation and what we can see. And yet, all men suppress this who are not in Christ. And when you interact with unbelievers, it is fair, true, and biblical for you to call them out on that. For you to call out, you know there is a God. Should you do this every day? Maybe not. I think the book of Jonah is showing us that The truth that when the trials and the sufferings of life are at their highest, are at their most desperate, people are really open to talking about things of the Lord. 
I had a, a, one of my professors at seminary, he's a missionary, and he, he mentioned that. He said when he was overseas in times of famine or in times of war or political upheaval, people who swore they would never talk to him about the Lord all of a sudden were curious. There's something about human nature in that. So keep that in mind. There's something to learn about these pagan sailors. And so the radical desperation of this troop of sailors continues. So their prayers to all their gods you know, didn't work. The storm is still going. So what do they do next? They decide to cast lots to find out who is at fault for this terrible storm. This, we don't know precisely what this looked like. It probably was a bag with a bunch of sticks in there, and one of them was short. It's where the phrase, he drew the short end of the stick, came, comes from. Or maybe it was a bunch of marbles, all of them are white, one of them's black. It could have been anything. The point is it was drawing a lot to see if chance, from their point of view, could tell them who was at fault. And you might be thinking, just from reading this episode, were they wrong to do this? Are lots sinful? Is it sinful to depend on chance or providence, as we would say? Well, the ancient world, even the non-Israelites, believed that everything was dominated and controlled by the divine. Even something as simple as rolling dice. In the Bible, Joshua cast lots to find out that it was Achan who stole the items from, uh, from Jericho. Lots were also used by the apostles to replace Judas. Lots were also used to divide the land of Israel for all the 12 tribes. And interestingly enough, also in America, a lottery system was used for the draft all the way up until the Vietnam War. I didn't know that. So legally, lots are used sometimes to ensure fairness when we can't trust that humans will be able to make a call. So throwing lots or using lots inherently is a neutral thing. But it can be used wisely or unwisely. Let me read two Proverbs uh, that are really interesting. Proverbs 18.18 18 says this, The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Very interesting. And yet, should you use lots all the time? No. <laughs> you should use prayer and your own discernment that the Lord has given you. Use it. It's something neutral. Use it to the Lord's glory. And it's noticeable that when lots are used in the Bible, it's in moments of severe desperation. It's not some run-of-the-mill decision. So check your heart when you think about these things. Is playing the lottery necessarily sin? No. But is spending a sizable portion of your income that God has given you to steward on luck and chance for winning riches, riches bad stewardship? Yes. So we have to check our hearts as Christians. So let's get back to the story. Imagine the terror in Jonah. He's sitting there thinking no one will find him out as the storm is raging. And here the bag of lots is getting handed from the one person to the next and the next. And no one's drawn the lot yet. Jonah didn't listen to the Lord. He didn't listen to the storm. He didn't listen to the captain. He didn't listen to the sailors. Will he listen to the lots? God really does use magnificent ways to get his people to repent. And I think we saw this in Psalm 32. This, probably this mindset that Jonah was having. 
For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Surely this describes Jonah's heart in this moment. And I think what we can learn from this is that there is far more joy and freedom in confession and admitting your sin than in trying to keep up that veneer of, I'm okay. In, in marriage with my wife, Sarah, I've noticed this same truth. When we just try to muscle through a day when there's something between us and make it work, it doesn't. I can tell, like, we need to talk through things and yet we're both stubborn and we're avoiding it. The times that we have sat down in the quiet and confessed our sin to one another, asked forgiveness, and then gone on to our day, it's always been much sweeter. Every time. And it's the same with all relationships in life. And God sought Jonah out through these lots. The lot was the last straw. Jonah was done faking. Something about the pressure of this moment broke him, as we will see. Read with me in verses 9 through 10, the confession. And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Praise the Lord! Jonah confessed! It's just, you're reading this book and you're like, Come on, Jonah! And he finally did it. What a powerful confession in front of these unbelievers. It's, It's as if Jonah was saying, You worship what is false and can do nothing. I worship the one who is true, who made all things, who is the reason for the storm, and he's doing it because of me. And the end of verse 10 clearly shows us that Jonah didn't just stop here. He told them everything. Because it says the sailors were terrified because they knew he was fleeing from the Lord because he had told them. What a lesson in confession. We, we, we as humans have a tendency when we confess either to the Lord or to others to try to clean ourselves up. Like, I'm going to confess, but I'll confess just enough so that I still look okay. Jonah laid it on the floor. They knew everything that he had done. And so I encourage you, when you confess to a spouse or a friend or to the Lord, don't hold back. When you admit sin, you can dwell in the Lord's mercy so much more. Now, there, you can go over too much and think, I have to admit every single sin I've ever committed, which is impossible. <laughs> it's not possible. So there's a balance to be found there. Notice the reaction of the sailors. They understood the gravity of this situation. Once again, they knew that someone was at fault. They were seeking answers. And when they heard Jonah say all this, they were terrified. Even they realized the horror of what Jonah had done in disobeying and running from a deliberate command of the Lord. It's it's as if they were saying to Jonah, you're telling me you obey the God who knows all things and made all things and you try to run away from them. Jonah's like, yes. You can't explain it. It's the irrationality of sin. It's like I've, I've heard stories of 
unbelieving co-workers who came to faith when their believing co-worker finally evangelized to them. And they asked a question like this. Wait, you're telling me this was true for 10 years and you never told me until now? And the believer's like, yes. <laughs> what do we do when unbelievers look more pious than Christians outwardly? It's like the centurion in the Gospels. This man, this Roman soldier came up to our Lord. And he understood how Jesus' power worked. He says, you don't even need to come to my house to heal my servant. Just say the word. Why? Because in the same way that me, a centurion, I can command my soldier, I recognize you're God, and you can command any demon to do whatever you want. And Jesus said, I have not found anyone in all of Israel with such great faith. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, he wrestles with this same question. Because I, I, th I think he was telling the story of someone he met who was trying to live a really pious Christian life. And then he met the Muslim who lived next door to him who excelled in almost every area of piety better than he did. And it wrecked him. And he has this great quote to say that's not the point of Christianity. Churches are more hospitals for sinners than they are museums for saints. Because God so often chooses what is weak in this world to shame the strong. Because God's power is made perfect in weakness. And it makes us as Christians wrestle with justification by faith alone. God did not save you because of your works. God did not save you because you had a good day. The Lord saved you because the, before the foundations of the earth, he took great pleasure, good pleasure, in loving you in his son. And we need to wrestle with that as Christians. And even in this small passage, we, we learn about the Lord's love for Jonah. He revealed Jonah's sin because he loved him. The Lord was sovereign in the storm, but he was also sovereign in that lot that he pulled out of the bag. But note the stubbornness of Jonah. It took him all of the way. And it reminds me with, of, of David's sin with Bathsheba. It took all of that time, all the way until Nathan the prophet told a story to get David to admit his sin. Perhaps something this drastic has happened to one of you. Perhaps your pornography habit had gotten so wild that someone caught you. Perhaps you were just keeping on a lie and then somebody found you out and called you on it. Perhaps your gossip got away with you and you realized how much you would hurt someone. My point is these moments are terrifyingly painful and yet aren't you thankful? It is God's mercy when he reveals the sin of his child. Jonah was never going to confess. He needed to be challenged. And I think we are the same way. Jonah's story in so many ways is your story and my story, if you know Christ. Because we wrestle with that voluntary and yet oppressive nature of sin. Sin at times, even for the Christian, can be something you love and something you hate. Something you cherish at times even though you despise it. Sin can be your joy and your captor at the same time as a Christian. 
And this is why you need church. So that God's word can wash over you in those moments of wrestling between what you love, what you hate. Because the scriptures say, if anyone is in Christ, behold, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. No matter how strong those desires may rage in your life, you have a new master, a good master. And his name is Jesus. Before we move on to this last section, I just want to make one point real quick. Jonah had no idea the whale was coming. He had no idea. Which means, in his moment, right at this point, death was the only way out. Yet he knew that death, having been honest about his sin, was more worthy than life living a lie. And that's crazy. I grew up so often hearing Jonah and the whale. I just don't think about the fact that he didn't know in verse 4 that that was coming. So either death at the hands of his enraged crewmates or death at the hands of the raging sea. And that's a terrifying choice. And yet Jonah was finally humble. Brothers and sisters, it's never too late to come to Christ. Never too late. Never give up on that lost family member. Never give up on your lost friends or co-workers. Never give up on yourself because through Christ, his mercy is more your sin. If Jonah can return by the power of God from this precipice, surely you and I are not beyond grace while we breathe. But we must repent and admit sin. Let's read this last section together. It shows Jonah's contrition, starting in verse 11. Then they, the sailors, said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah knew that the only way that the situation could be safe for the sailors was if he was thrown into the sea. How did he know this? I don't know. Perhaps the Lord revealed it to him. We, it, the text isn't clear. But he was telling the truth, because that's what happened. And I, I think that the, the text is meant to show us that part of the reason that Jonah was humbled was he had mercy upon the sailors. He was hard in his heart, hard in his sin, but then he realized, if I'm hard in my sin, these sailors will die. And right there, this is an important point in the story. Jonah shows not only remorse, but a hint of mercy towards the lost. And remember, at the beginning of the book, this whole Episode began because Jonah failed to show mercy to the lost. God is at work in Jonah. The sailors, and they thought it was an awful thing to try to throw Jonah overboard. Notice, because it says they dug in hard. They tried all the more to go, go to land because they didn't even want to kill Jonah, the guy who was at fault. Once again, these sailors, for being pagans at this moment, were pretty nice people. 
Which shows the irony, once again, of Jonah's unmerciful heart. We're meant to see this dichotomy. And so instantly, they throw Jonah overboard. He hits the water, instantly calm. The sea was as smooth as glass, not a breeze all around them. All the sailors, for all the sailors knew, Jonah was dead and gone at the bottom of the ocean. They didn't know the whale was coming. Neither did Jonah. But notice for me one of the most incredible things about this passage. When they didn't want to be at fault for this innocent man, they cried out, Oh Lord, let us not perish. Oh Lord, you have done as it pleased you. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Every moment in this passage before this, these men have only referred to a deity as lowercase g, God, Elohim. Here, they call him Yahweh. This is Israel's personal name for their God. And this is what's incredible. They feared the Lord, they feared Yahweh, with a great fear and acted upon it. And this is what's incredible about God's sovereignty. Jonah disobeyed the command to go and save the Ninevites. And yet, because of his disobedience, these pagan sailors praised the name of the Lord, the God who made heaven and earth. Doesn't justify what Jonah did at all. And yet the Lord is magnificent in using even the most evil actions to his purposes. So what about Jonah? For all he knew, he was dead. Doomed to drown and be forgotten. I'm not going to talk about the next verse because, as I said, I want us to soak in Jonah's perspective. Better a terrible death while being at peace with the Lord than fighting for life amidst a lie. Friends, peace with God in the conscience is an immeasurable gift. And through the cross of Christ, you have that. That gift of peace in eternity. So, in conclusion, i got three lessons that we can learn from this passage. Three lessons. First, about man, ourselves. We learn a lot about our sin from Jonah. Sin flees, is terrified, and eventually is seared to what is wrong if we ignore our consciences. Has this ever happened to you? You started off with a bad habit, and perhaps until today it's been so ingrained in you that it ceases to even wake you up. Be warned by Jonah. Wake up. Confess your sin. Your father is merciful. He will forgive you if you ask in Christ. Number two, we learn about God's mercy. God's mercy. And he uses fantastic ways to bring his children to repentance. Just to ask a few questions. What if the very agony you are going through right now is God's severe mercy to save your soul? It's a hard thing to think about, but we need to think about it. It doesn't mean that situations no longer have pain. Jesus still wept when he saw Lazarus in the tomb. But it helps our worship. But I can say this, that whatever you are going through, be it struggles of singleness, maybe an illness that will not go away, struggling to parent or struggling to be parented, perhaps you've lost a loved one in your life or there's difficulties in work or your marriage or just trying to find the Lord's path for your life. 
You might be in this season because of your sin like Jonah. You might be in this season for the glory of God like the man born blind. I don't know. But I can say this. The question is not, does this storm have a purpose? The question is, is Jesus Christ your only hope in life and death? And if that is yes, it is not possible for there to be a pointless storm. It's not possible. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We all must admit that the worst this life can throw at us is still a mercy while we're in the arms of Christ. And the joy is when we, when we enter into glory and behold God face to face, I believe all of us will say, thank you for the storms. Thank you for the cross. Last point. We learn about the person of Jesus through studying Jonah. What if Jesus were like Jonah? What if Jesus were like Jonah? When faced with the certain demise and lost state of countless amounts of sinners, what if Jesus turned the other way? I think that that's what we should wrestle with here. Is that the lack of mercy of Jonah must help us to lift our gaze to Christ and consider His great mercy. Because before the foundation of the world, the Trinity and all of its perfect unity was in complete agreement to save His church, to save you from your sins. Because Jesus and Jonah situationally are so similar. Both slept in a boat in a storm surrounded by seafaring men who were terrified. Both were aroused in hopes of ending the storm. Both were the cause of the sea becoming instantly calm. But what were the differences? Jonah was there because he was fleeing from God. Jesus was there because he was faithful. Jonah had to pay for his sin by being cast out of the boat. Jesus silenced the rage because he was God incarnate. Jonah sacrificed his life to save pagan men eventually. And Jesus always purposed to go to the cross. My point is, if Jesus were like Jonah, we would all be lost. Thank goodness for the gift of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the stories of saints in the past. Father, surely if Jonah is not beyond your saving mercy, then neither are we. I pray that you'd help us to confess and repent of our sin and to look to Christ at the cross as our only hope in life and death. And we will see him again when he returns to gather up his church. And I ask this all in the name of our Savior. Amen.